Father, thank you that that at the cross our sin is forgiven, that in your resurrection we are made new, justified to new life. We pray now, Father, that as we get a glimpse of your glory this evening in praise and through the text we're about to hear from, that you you would help us indeed to surrender ourselves to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, welcome again to Epiphany. It's great to be here with you this evening. Uh, In case this is your first time with us, my name's Eric. I'm the pastor here at Epiphany. And um, usually, you know, we go through a series or we'll go through a book of the Bible, but we're about to enter into the season of Lent. I don't know if you're familiar with the season of Lent, but it's a six-week period of time before Easter, running up to Easter, in which we, we sort of observe the reason why Jesus' death and resurrection had to happen. And of course, the main reason for that is because, well, because we're sinners and because uh, there needed to be atonement for our sin. Uh, And so we're going to start that off tonight, even though Lent hasn't officially started, by looking at the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, This passage found in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. You can follow along on the screen if you like. The words read like this. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. Those were sort of his inner disciples, the guys he was closest to. And went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke adds, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. End of reading. Well, I think uh, I've shared with you before that uh, my favorite band for many years was Weezer. Uh, I heard their new album this week. Eh, it's whatever. It's not great. The, the magic has kind of been lost, in my opinion. But the Blue Album and Pinkerton are top-notch. I mean, about as good as you can get in rock and roll music. And I remember very vividly the first time I saw Weezer in concert. It was right after the release of the album Pinkerton. They were playing at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go in L.A., you know, famous Whiskey-A-Go-Go on the Sunset Strip. Tiny little club, but I can remember it so vividly because I had really never been to a concert to see a band I loved in such a tiny venue. I was going to be really, really close 
to these rock and roll heroes. And the air was absolutely electric outside as a crowd of fellow power pop nerds uh, waited in line with bated breath to see their favorite band perform up and close and personal with me. And after hours of standing in the line, we were finally let into the building. And after that, what seemed like hours more, the lights went down and the silhouettes of the members of Weezer finally came on stage and the crowd went nuts before they even struck a chord. And everyone in the room immediately rushed to the stage to get as close as they possibly could. And I remember being carried with that rush. Some of you have been to a, a concert like this, know what that's like. Like you don't have control of your body anymore. Like you are just, be, you are flowing with the herd. And I found myself about five feet away from the stage. I mean, I could see inside Rivers Cuomo, the lead singer's nostrils. It was quite a moment. I couldn't even lift my arms, even though I wanted to, because I was so just squished in. And I was on cloud nine. It was, uh, it was a mountaintop experience of a sort. You ever had a mountaintop experience like that? You know, one of those experiences that was so amazing, so breathtaking, that it almost felt like you were having a divine moment, a moment of ecstasy. You ever had a mountaintop experience with God? I mean, and I'm not necessarily talking literal mountaintop, although it tends to be that Christian camps all the time, an awful lot of the time, happen to be in mountains, and that tends to be where mountaintop experiences happen for Christians. But times where his power and his presence just seemed overwhelming to you, where it felt like, yes, like, yes, God is really real. He's more real to me now than he's ever felt to me before. Well, if there was ever anybody that's had that experience, of course, it's Peter, James, and John here in this passage. Not only did they get to pray directly with the Lord, I mean, they were praying with him, uh, but they get to see a glimpse of his eternal personage. Luke says Jesus' face is, quote, altered, to say the least. His clothes become bright white. And the word that might be used is like electricity, like lightning uh, bursting out of him. Uh, and Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law of God and Elijah representing the prophets of God in the Old Testament, show up in glorified heavenly bodies. And yet, I mean, when one reads the gospel accounts, when one reads the narratives of the gospels, this is not the normal experience of life. This is not what Peter, James, and John go through most of the time. Remember, Jesus says most days he doesn't have a place to lay his head. They're following him. That means they don't either. Uh, gigantic, needy crowds are following them all the time, looking for food and for healing and for any kind of help they can get. Jesus and his disciples are hated by the religious leaders of the day, and it's not as if the Roman government were their pals either. And yet tonight, at this time, just for a little bit, it's, it's different. Why? Why does he give them an experience like this? Why does he give us experiences like that? 
Well, I think the first answer to that is to confirm, once again, who he actually is. Remember, the disciples struggle with this, right? I mean, even after this event, they struggle with this. They struggle with understanding exactly Jesus' identity. Even in this chapter, right before we come to our passage twice, in verse 9 and verse 19, the question of who he is comes up. In verse 9, Herod says, who is this Jesus? And in verse 19, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answer, well, you know, some say John the Baptist. Maybe you're sort of a reincarnated version of Elijah. Maybe another prophet. I mean, you know, people are saying all sorts of things about who you are, Jesus. And then who shows up at the mountain to speak with Jesus? In this very moment of questioning his identity, Moses and Elijah. What's the significance of these two guys showing up? Well, first of all, remember who these two guys are. As was mentioned earlier, Moses is the symbol for the law of God. He is the one who delivers the law of God. Where does he go to get the law of God? mountain himself, Mount Sinai. Then you have the prophet Elijah, whose greatest maybe accomplishment as a prophet happens on another mountain himself, Mount Carmel, in which he calls down lightning and thunder to kill his enemies, the prophets of Baal. What are they doing there? Well, remember, in, in the New Testament, you can find this all over the place, Oftentimes, the Old Testament, there's no time in the New Testament where the Old Testament is referred to by that title. Instead, the title that's given to the Old Testament by the church in the early days is the Law and the Prophets. Now, if you flipped to Matthew 5, which I won't have you do right now, or I should say swiped to Matthew 5, you would see that Jesus says his mission is to, quote, fulfill every word that's written in the law. Later on, speaking to his disciples on the Emmaus Road, in Luke 24, he says, all of the law and the prophets is ultimately about me. Here you have the personification of the law and the prophets. What's the message supposed to be for his disciples here, for Peter, James, and John. He is saying, I am Lord over the law represented by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah. He is saying to them, I am the fulfillment of the law Moses gave to you and the words the prophets spoke to you. As a matter of fact, I am the word made flesh, John 1.1. 1, 1. I am your Lord. Don't you forget. And yet it can be easy to forget just who it is we serve, right? In the day in, day out of our lives, sometimes it seems as though Jesus is distant, or we may even wonder if we're following the right God. I mean, after all, Christianity isn't the only gig in town. There's lots of religions out there that are claiming they're the truth. It's easy to get to the point in our daily lives where we find ourselves doing what the disciples were doing in verse 32, going night-night. Taking a little nap. Just get tired. And you lose focus. And so Jesus, knowing this about us, every once in a while, gives us a glimpse, again, 
reminds us again who it is we serve. It can happen anywhere. It can happen singing a great worship song where you become reminded again, oh yeah. Maybe in quiet prayer. It may be at the Lord's table. You're reminded again of his presence with us. Or it could be when you're hearing the word. After all, Jesus says faith comes by hearing the word. Peter, James, and John remember this night vividly. It's interesting that in later writings by Peter in the scriptures, 2 Peter, he mentions this event. John alludes to this event in his writings. I mean, this had a profound impact on him. He was God in the flesh, and they were experiencing him right there. So that's, I mean, a big reason why those experiences happen. But also, at the same time, as he's confirming to us his identity, when we have this experience of feeling very close to him, there's also this correcting aspect to this experience. I mean, by this point in the story, the disciples are wide awake, and as they realize what they're seeing, it's natural. It's natural. It makes sense that maybe, just maybe, the first response that Peter gives is correct. It seems to make sense. I mean, Peter says, Master, let's stay here. Now, it seems that he says this in response to the fact that Moses and Elijah appear to be departing from him. And so it's almost as if Peter's like, no, 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 wait, guys, like, if I can give you a modern translation. Guys, guys, the party's not over. Guys, come back. Guys, let's, let's hang out a little more. I want to I learn the secrets of the universe from, like, I mean, they're all here. Let's do this thing. I wanna, let's, let's hang out for a while. First glance, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with that. But, but Luke says he didn't know what he was saying. Why would Luke say that? Well, because Luke has the vantage point of knowing what else Peter will do and what James and John will do. Think about Peter. Peter, Peter has the desire to keep Jesus there. But Peter does not want to face difficulty that comes with him later. Later he's going to deny Jesus a few times. Or think about James and John, the sons of thunder, who wanted to literally call down thunder on their enemies. Luke knows why they're not allowed to stay there. They've got work to do. Scholar and theologian Arthur Just writes, uh, Peter wants to preserve the glory by building tabernacles for each of the three main participants. Here, at this moment, he becomes a true theologian of glory. He focuses on the heavenly glory, but does not want to face the suffering that will and must precede it. The cross comes before the resurrection, but Peter doesn't want to move to what lies beyond this extraordinary revelation. And that is just like me. I want to stay where it's glorious. Though Jesus has promised that our lives will be marked often with suffering and difficulty, will be full of cross-bearing. I mean, he warns us about it. He tells us it's coming. I want that. Just don't. I like the life of being on vacation. 
You ever gone on vacation? This has happened to me. This happens to me almost every time I go on vacation. I go on vacation somewhere. It could be anywhere. And of course, vacation is a time where I don't have any responsibility and I don't have any job. I don't I, like my day is you get up on vacation. You're like, well, sky, whatever you want. Let's just do any of the things. And have you ever found yourself saying after a few days being somewhere, I think we can move here. I could totally live here. I could totally live here. That is 100% what I want. I just want life of vacation. At least I think, until I busy myself up again. You know, but this is the reality. This is what Peter wants. Peter's like, this, this is old school Bahama living. You know, this is the way to be right here. And yet, it's at those times that we need correction. We need to be reminded. And so, the Father shows up. Verse 34, in a cloud. Remember what happens on Mount Sinai. Moses has to enter a cloud in order to hear from God. This same cloud comes over the presence of Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the disciples. And it says the disciples are terrified. This is always the experience when the Father comes in his glory like this. They're terrified of it. Now, now they're not so sure they want to stay. And what does the Father say to them? The Father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now again, even this statement from the Father has its roots in the Old Testament. This is my son is a reference to Psalm 2, where God speaks of the future Messiah to come in that language as his son. His chosen one is a reference to Isaiah referring to his servant or God's servant, the Messiah, as, quote, his chosen or appointed one. We're told to listen to what he has to say. Listen to what he's saying, church. What is, what is he talking about? What is he saying? We go back to verse 33 and we're told this. He and Elijah and Moses are speaking about one thing and one thing only. They are speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is one of my favorite things in the entire world. What is this departure? Well, in Greek, and I, I hesitate to do the Greek thing. I mean, I, I know how to do it, but I don't, I, but this is just a really, really great example of, of a way that it can really be special and bring out the meaning of the text. In Greek, the word here is actually exodus. What's he going to accomplish in Jerusalem? Well, he's, he's going to die for our sins and rise from the dead and thereby bring about the true exodus that Moses only foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Whereas Moses brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus is going to bring all humanity out of slavery to our sin. In other words, what are Moses and Elijah talking to the very Son of God about? The cross, the cross, the cross. What are we to listen to? What are we to remember? That first, before the crown of glory, is a cross. That the main purpose of Jesus' coming was not to give us glory here and now, but to suffer on the cross for our sins first, to then give us glory later. So oftentimes we're given these experiences to correct our thinking about God and his plan, to be reminded that always first, the order of his plan is first a cross and then a crown. That's it. 
The final reason in the text I think we're given mountaintop experiences is because we need to be comforted. If you were to go back to the beginning of the passage again, verse 28, it says, Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James. Now, what are these sayings he's referring to? Well, if you go back to the passage right before it, here's what Jesus says to them. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Think about what the Lord is promising to the disciples in the context of this passage. Before this event on the mountaintop, he tells them he's going to die. Right after this event, they are going right back down the hill into the world of sin and sickness and death and disease. And we know this, I mean, literally they are going, they are going into a situation where the rest of the disciples are trying to cast out a demon and they can't. The demon is making them look embarrassing. And a father is begging, begging for relief and to no avail. They can't fix it. This is the world they're going to enter right back into. So they need to be comforted that in the end everything Everything is ultimately under God's plan. So the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's coming. Therefore, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, this is what Paul calls all of life. This is a guy who's been shipwrecked many times, beaten nearly to death many times, has all, I mean, been stoned. I mean, he's gone through all sorts of things. And what does he call it? It's a light, momentary affliction. It's just, it's just a little thing. What is it doing? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And so it is that God every once in a while takes us to the mountain. So let me close with something very important. The tendency when hearing a passage like this is to try to then look forward to the next mountaintop experience. And we tend to identify that with emotional experiences. And that's fine. And so emotions, are, emotions are good. They're not bad. They were created by the Lord. They're just not always trustworthy. So I, wanna, I want to ground you again that actually, you know, every time you gather with your brothers and sisters at church, every time you come together for service, you know that this is essentially God bringing you to the mountain again, right? You know that the whole purpose of this is again to remind you of who it is you're serving? To yes, correct you in maybe ways that you've gotten it off this week, and yes, to comfort you with the reminder that yes, Jesus is still working in you and is, he's promised, he is going to bring you to glory. And he seals that tonight and we're going to go to the table here and what does he say? What does he say again and again and again here to you? Again, after your week where you have botched it in ways that you didn't think you would ever do again. 
after the kinds of slimy thoughts that went in, that came across your mind about your neighbor or your coworker because they just happened to irritate you or annoy you a little bit, of all the things that you know you've got, still, every week, you come in here, and what does he say? Here's my body for you. Here's my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all of it. Wipe clean. In other words, welcome back to the mountain. Welcome back to the place where I brought you to give you gifts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the, the really tangible experiences that many of us probably have had at camps or uh, places that just seem to be really special in our life. But I thank you that you don't just move there, but that you move here in our midst every time we gather. Where your word is preached, you're revealing yourself again to us, reminding us, comforting us. So, Father, I pray. I pray now as we prepare to go to the table that that you would satiate our thirst for you and our hunger for your righteousness. I ask this in Jesus' name.